23. What is slash isn't transformative justice? Adrienne Marais Brown. I've been thinking a lot about transformative justice lately. In the past few months I've been to a couple of gatherings that I was really excited about, and then found myself disappointed, not because drama kicked up, which is inevitable, but because of how we as participants and organizers and people handled those dramas. Simultaneously, I've watched several public takedowns, callouts, and other grievances take place on social and mainstream media. And I'm wondering if those of us with an intention of transforming the world have a common understanding of the kind of justice we want to practice, now and in the future. What we do now is find out someone or some group has done, or may have done, something out of alignment with our values. Some of the transgressions are small, saying something fucked up. Some are massive, false identity, sexual assault. We then tear that person or group to shreds in a way that reaffirms our values. When we are satisfied that that person or group is destroyed, we move on. Or sometimes we just move on because the next scandal has arrived. I'm not above this behavior, I laugh at the memes and like the apoplectic statuses. I feel better about myself because I'm on the right side of history, or at least the news cycle. But I also wonder, is this what we're here for? To cultivate a fear-based adherence to reductive common values? What can this lead to in an imperfect world full of sloppy, complex humans? Is it possible we will call each other out until there's no one left beside us? I've had tons of conversations with people who, in these moments of public flame, avoid stepping up on the side of complexity or curiosity because in the back of our minds is the shared unspoken question, when will y'all come for me? The places I'm drawn to in movement espouse a desire for transformative justice, justice practices that go all the way to the root of the problem and generate solutions and healing there, such that the conditions that create injustice are transformed. And yet, we don't really know how to do it. We call it transformative justice when we're throwing knives and insults, exposing each other's worst mistakes, reducing each other to moments of failure. We call it holding each other accountable. I'm tired of it. I see it everywhere I turn. When the response to mistakes, failures, and misunderstandings is emotional, psychological, economic, and physical punishment, we breed a culture of fear, secrecy, and isolation. So, I'm wondering, in a real way, how can we pivot toward practicing transformative justice? How do we shift from individual, interpersonal, and interorganizational anger toward viable generative sustainable systemic change? In my facilitation and meditation work, I've seen three questions that can help us grow. I offer them here with real longing to hear more responses, to get in deep practice that helps us create conditions conducive to life in our movements and communities. Listen with why? As a framework. People mess up. We lie, exaggerate, betray, hurt, and abandon each other. When we hear that this has happened, it makes sense to feel anger, pain, confusion, and sadness. But to move immediately to punishment means that we stay on the surface of what has happened. To transform the conditions of the wrongdoing, we have to ask ourselves and each other, why? Even, especially, when we are scared of the answer. It's easy to decide a person or group is shady, evil, psychopathic. The hard truth, hard because there's no quick fix, is that long-term injustice creates most evil behavior. The percentage of psychopaths in the world is just not high enough to justify the ease with which we assign that condition to others. In my mediations, why? Is often the game-changing, possibility-opening question. 
That's because the answers rehumanize those we feel are perpetuating against us. Why? Often leads us to grief, abuse, trauma, mental illness, difference, socialization, childhood, scarcity, loneliness. Also, why? Makes it impossible to ignore that we might be capable of a similar transgression in similar circumstances. We don't want to see that. Demonizing is more efficient than relinquishing our worldviews, which is why we have slavery, holocausts, lynchings, and witch trials in our short human history. Why? Can be an evolutionary question. Ask yourself slash selves. What can I slash we learn from this? I love the pop star Rihanna, not just because she smokes blunts and ball gowns but also because one of her earliest tattoos is never a failure, always a lesson. If the only thing I can learn from a situation is that some humans do bad things, it's a waste of my precious time, I already know that. What I want to know is, what can this teach me slash us about how to improve our humanity? For instance, Bill Cosby's mass rape history is not a lesson in him being a horrible isolated mass rapist. It's a lesson in listening to women who identify perpetrators, making sure those perpetrators are not able to continue their violence but instead experience interventions that transform them, make that injustice impossible. If the first woman raped by Cosby had been listened to, over 40 other women could have been spared. What can we learn? In every situation there are lessons that lead to transformation. How can my real-time actions contribute to transforming this situation, versus making it worse? This question feels particularly important in the age of social media, where we can make our pain viral before we have even had a chance to feel it. Often we are well down a path of public shaming and punishment before we have any facts about what's happening. That's true of mainstream takedowns, and it's true of interpersonal grievances. We air our dirt not to each other but with each other, with hashtags or in specific but nameless rants, to the public, and to those who feed on our weakness and divisions. We make it less likely to find room for mediation and transformation. We make less of ourselves. Again, there are times when that kind of calling out is the only option, particularly with those of great privilege who are not within our reach. But if you have each other's phone numbers, or are within two degrees of social media connection, and particularly if you are in the small, small percentage of humans trying to change the world, you actually have access to transformative justice in real time. Get mediation support, think of the community, move toward justice. Real time is slower than social media time, where everything feels urgent. Real time often includes periods of silence, reflection, growth, space, self-forgiveness, processing with loved ones, rest, and responsibility. Real-time transformation requires stating your needs and setting functional boundaries. Transformative justice requires us at minimum to ask ourselves questions like these before we jump, teeth bared, for the jugular. I think this is some of the hardest work. It's not about pack-hunting an external enemy, it's about deep shifts in our own ways of being. But if we want to create a world in which conflict and trauma aren't the center of our collective existence, we have to practice something new, ask different questions, access again our curiosity about each other as a species. And so much more. I want us to do better. I want to feel like we are responsible for each other's transformation. Not the transformation from vibrant flawed humans to bits of ash, but rather the transformation from broken people and communities to whole ones. I believe transformative justice could yield deeper trust, resilience, and interdependence. 
All these mass and intimate punishments keep us small and fragile. And right now, our movements and the people within them need to be massive and complex and strong. I want to hear what y'all think and what you're practicing in the spirit of transformative justice. Toward wholeness and evolution, loves. Part 4, What Did We Dream Then, What Do We Know Now? Movement Histories and Futures. 24, Our Hearts Are Beating Together. A Conversation with Some TJ Old Heads. Adrian Cole, Yalini Dream, Alexis Pauline Gums, and Jenna Peters Golden, A. Harris Dixon and Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasinha. When we first started envisioning this anthology, one of the most important things we wanted to include was interviews with people who'd been involved in transformative justice back in the day in the late 1990s and early to mid-2000s. There were so many foundational community accountability projects from those days that were disappearing from common knowledge because they were from the MySpace generation a lot of their Web 1.0 websites had gone offline, or they were never online in the first place. In the course of putting this book together, the old heads combo kept getting shoved to the bottom of our agenda. When we finally finished editing our email and sent it out, we realized that the proper archiving of community accountability work done from the late 1990s to 2010s is a huge project, one that deserves an archive of its own. Instead, we present to you the learning we received from four people in an hour and half long conversation. Speaking from their experiences in transformative justice collective work in the early 2000s in Durham, Philadelphia, and Brooklyn, their words map some of what we dreamed then how far we've come today, and the future we are creating out of our biggest hopes, mistakes, and learning by doing. A. Harris, TJ is in a really different place now than when a lot of us were doing it, in ways that can be awesome, in ways that can be, from my perspective, challenging. I would love for y'all to talk about the projects you have been involved in, some of which are still continuing, some of which are not. If you have any major lessons or takeaways when you look back to that time, what are they? Yalini, I worked with the Safe Outside the System Collective of the Audrey Lord Project in Brooklyn, New York. We were looking at community safety and responsibility, as well as community defense, which necessitated us to also be engaged in transformative justice practices. I've been informally a part of several different TJ processes within political and artistic communities, in some of which the person doing harm was not able to take accountability, and other processes they were able to transform. Jenna, I was part of a group called the Philly Stands Up Collective from around 2007 until around 2015. Our collective also sometimes worked with a sibling collective, Philly's Pissed, who supports survivors. Philly Stands Up worked with people who perpetrated harm, mostly sexual assault and intimate partner abuse in queer and radical and kind of like punk communities. That took the shape of us facilitating accountability processes, and also doing some writing and resource development, and some popular education stuff, and, especially around 2010 to 2011, getting a lot more connected to prison abolition work happening in Philadelphia and the United States. Since Philly Stands Up wound down by 2015, we're still kind of a loose collective of comrades who meet and work on projects together. All of us individually are called on pretty regularly to participate in processes, working with survivors and or people who perpetrate harm to seek accountability and transformation, steadily since then as well as getting, I'm sure many of you experience this too, getting a lot of calls and asks from people all over the country, or Canada and beyond, around how do we build our own local TJ projects. Which is always like an interesting little scan of what are some of the things happening. And yeah, my takeaways are like, 
I don't know, a millionfold. Maybe one or two kind of bubbling up for me right now are, like, we talk a lot about survivor-centered, healing-focused accountability processes. And what does it look like for there to be healing for people who are harmed in accountability processes that are working to transform behaviors of a perpetrator as well as a community? And, you know, infinite microscopic questions of trying that, and moments feeling like it works, and a ton of moments feeling like it doesn't work, or like those things don't fit together, and feeling stuck, and sometimes motivated around that question. Another takeaway that's maybe more uplifting is that in the moments that I, or our collectives or communities, have felt the most alive is when there's different sectoral anti-violence work or transformative justice work linked up in a kind of coordinated way. And so in Philadelphia right now, based on a Supreme Court ruling from a couple years ago, where they found it unconstitutional for people in Pennsylvania who were sentenced to die incarcerated, yeah, life without parole sentences as juveniles, as unconstitutional. So, right now in Philadelphia, we're experiencing this incredible moment where people who have been in prison for 20, 30, 40 years, since they were teenagers, are quickly getting resentenced, and coming home, like, weeks or months later. And that's amazing, and creating so many moments of also working with a lot of groups that identify as victim support groups, in communities where people who were harmed by the acts of violence that people went to prison for are still in community, or attend the same place of worship with each other's families. And I think that we're unlocking lots of new moments and places of stuckness and opportunity and questions, and it's like, when things cannot just be in A, like, only when intimate partner violence happens, or only when street-based harm happens, or only when this other piece of violence happens, that we can all really figure out what are we networking, cause every little sector and every little community has a different perspective and major wisdom working on this. That's definitely when I see the strength spreading even in moments of major stuckness and confusion and pain. So, that's definitely a lot of big stuff happening. Adrian, I was involved in this work in Philadelphia, through Philly's Pist. I was a member from the very start in 2005 until about 2009. But for the last decade, I've been doing work organizing with incarcerated trans people, as part of an inside-slash-outside collective. And working on HIV criminalization as an issue. Certainly. The way that I think about the work I'm involved in now has been profoundly affected by the things that I learned through organizing around community responses to harm. Alexis, I moved to Durham, North Carolina, in 2004, and became part of an organization called Spirit House. And, in 2006, in response to the Duke Lacrosse rape case, Spirit House was one of the founding organizations, and I was one of the founding individuals, of Ubuntu which was a women-of-color survivor-led coalition to end gendered violence through sustaining transformative love. With Ebony Noel Golden, I was initial co-chair of the Artistic Response Team. And that is a defining, incredible experience of my life, and one way that I would describe it from here is that it was a time when, in response to a really public crisis in our community, and repetitive crisis in the media that criminalizes us, and a crisis via social media and the internet where those of us speaking out individually were getting death threats, many organizations and people realized how much our unresolved trauma from living in a society that perpetuates gendered and sexual violence intersected with everything that we cared about, our overt work for racial justice, environmental and economic justice was underlaid with this unresolved trauma of the impact of sexual violence on all of us. It was a powerful moment of organizing and recognition. 
There were some beautiful awareness-raising campaigns and public direct actions and political education curricula and organizational transformations that happened, and then, I'm not really great at remembering years, except like, years leading up to 1982 in regards to black feminist publications. Laughs, so, I don't know exactly what year, but I know it was after the National Day of Truth-Telling, the most visible direct action of our coalition, there was a transition of Ubuntu to really focus on the harm-free zone as a concept and really, especially inspired by work that Kyla Mumbabaro had been involved in, in Brooklyn, in terms of generating the concept of what is a harm-free zone. Kai had moved to Durham and was central to the creation of Ubuntu, it was, in fact, founded at her house, and she played a major role in sharing the concept of the harm-free zone with all of us and creating a structure where we could define it for the needs of our community. And that is work that has continued, and is held mostly by Spirit House, the same organization that has been my first and lasting movement home since I moved to Durham 14 years ago. So, the harm-free zone, now, is ongoing. It has structure. There's organizational commitment and a community of participants beyond Spirit House. There's a growing community investment. With the police violence and the police infrastructure building going on in Durham right now, the existence of a working alternative to police responses to community harm is crucial. There's also lots of stuff around climate and the hurricanes that are going on right now and the concept of building communities of care that can respond to crises, interpersonal harm, and state violence is also key for that work. My role in relationship to Spirit House really isn't directly on the harm-free zone team right now, even though I'm part of that extended community and I'm available as a resource. But, day-to-day it's really held by other people who I'm hoping will write something for this book. Laughs, I'm trying to encourage that and make that connection, and, you know, I just know that my folks are doing so many things, and I'm grateful for all of it. So, some of the takeaways that I have from my vantage point, and I hope I'm making it clear that I have some more distance now from what I would see as the direct TJ work that's happening than I did earlier in the decade when I was more directly involved. I think there's something that I have seen about just how much we want to live in the world that transformative justice teaches us is possible. Time has come up a couple times in the conversation, and I would say that in relationship to time, early on we may have rushed towards that future in ways that were harmful for us and challenging organizationally. As in we were not, as our loved one Adrienne Marais Brown would say, moving at the speed of trust, but instead moving at the speed of lust for the world that we deserve. And I'm 100% implicated in that. And it's also a result of the urgency we feel in our community. There's so much ongoing police harassment, and so much in our face state impact and detainment, that it's, we just could never get away from how harmful those state systems are, and we really want to have something else, and other ways to hold each other. And sometimes I think we've moved faster than we can, and that has caused other harms or caused us to drop each other when we really want to hold each other. And so, part of what that has looked like is seeing the survival skills that we've had to cultivate used against each other, in ways that have been hard, and that has been heartbreaking for me, at times, and not only for me, but I'm the one here, so I can speak about it, I can speak about my heart. And, yeah, and I would say that there's something that I don't quite have fully articulated yet but I'm thinking about it right now because I'm looking at what the hurricane response is like right now in North Carolina, and who's participating in it, and I'm like, oh, it's the same people. The same people, and there's something about survivors, and those of us who have and are attuned to survival skills, and maybe because of some of the things that we've survived, 
that really move very fast when it comes to something that's an agreed-upon disaster that we're surviving together. And then all of the smaller things that we're surviving and also putting each other through can sometimes get skipped over, because there is always a disaster to respond to, even if it's not a hurricane. As people have shared in our check-ins, there's always something happening. So, I'm thinking about that, too, like, what would it really, what does it really take to move at the speed of trust in the midst of compounding disasters? And also just how much a difference it makes, from my own vantage point, to see the harm-free zone, as it functions in our community, as something that's long-term and really held, and that is something that people are engaging on regular basis, not just in response to different crises, but are engaging as an ongoing collective practice of retraining ourselves, and then having it expand. How that actually can allow folks to slow down in a number of ways. Allow folks to slow down who are holding it on a daily basis, acknowledging that we are not going to learn this in one day. Or, even through our response to one conflict. This is something that we're committed to for our whole lives, and that we're committed to intergenerationally. But also, I'm learning what it means for people to be able to also have different roles. So, for me, for example, as a person who knows that there is a harm-free zone happening, and that there are harm-free zone gatherings that are regular, and that there's a way for me to participate in that, that's not in the drop-everything way that I once was relating to this work. At the beginning for me it was always a response to emergency, and I wasn't as aware of my specific skills and gifts in relationship to the gifts of those around me. It was not necessarily something that I knew that I could be playing different roles in building for the rest of my life. It felt very all or nothing. I was either working on this all day or abandoning my community. Now I see it in a more expansive way and I trust my community more. So, yeah, that's something that occurs to me from this vantage point, too. Leah, what were your hopes when you started doing this work, and how did that shift over time? As an example, I totally thought 10 years ago that by now we would have transformative justice councils in every community, in a North America-wide network. I was wrong about that. Very wrong. Laughs. Alexis, I can say that at the beginning of the process for me, I hope that the kids who were part of the families who were involved with us, like, the children of my fellow co-founders, would not experience interpersonal or state violence, and would not be impacted by that in their families, and some of them have which is something that has been really hard. Just how pervasive it is. Not just in the world we live in, but just for even those of us who are directly convening to transform. The intergenerational time scale is different than what I thought it would be. And I will say that in thinking about our families, and the intergenerational scale of this work as I've seen it over the past 10 years, I do think that I've seen the generation that I've seen grow up have different resources, have different skills and options around dealing with that harm, and that makes a difference for me. But I did have a hope that, like, okay, we had to go through all this stuff, but at least we can have this set of children that we can see from here, this set of children that we are raising in this context and they will not have to go through things that are very similar. And they have gone through things that are very similar, and that is something that, you know, intellectually, we understand that these things are intergenerational cycles of violence, and it's really hard to accept that it will be incrementally different, but not totally gone within the span of a decade or two. Adrian, the thing that I was thinking of when Alexis was talking just now that early on, Philly's Pissed was nicknamed the two-year plan, and I think that all of us. Laughter. Like, the way that you do make changes you have some workshops, and you have some conversations, and then we're not as fucked up anymore, right? 
But, in fact change happens really slowly over time, and we have to have compassion for ourselves and each other in the long term, and that there's painful, painful setbacks. I went into this, I mean, I don't think we really thought it was two-year plan, and there won't be any more sexual assault, but that was, like, there was an optimism that was maybe, well, you know, it was optimistic. Leah, thank you. I hope you heard me laughing. Jenna, oh man, the two-year plan, that's amazing and heartbreaking. Yeah, actually really similarly to that, Adrian, when I got connected to Philly Stands Up, I was 19, and when I joined the collective I was like 20, 21. And so, I definitely had a sharp vision of how prisons would be, like, totally unnecessary within maybe 10 years, you know, like in long term. Laughter. I think, in a more specific way, I really thought that once people got wind of stuff, maybe by like drenching the streets in zines or something, about how freeing it was to actually do the work to heal wounds, especially wounds around toxic masculinity and patriarchy, that folks would understand that this was such a gifted opportunity that we all had, like that it was a gift to get to be accountable and not a punishment. And that kind of core heart sense of, I can get closer to my humanness, and my own connection would be so alluring that it would not only stop violence in its tracks but kinda also just shift the shape of how people wanted to move through it after violence had happened, and people had enacted harm. Yeah. Oh yeah, I love the Virgo dream. I was on more of a Leo tip, but I like that. I was there. Yalini, yeah, it's interesting. I think, maybe because I spent my adolescence in Texas, I had normalized this sense of radical obscurity. I expected that obscurity around transformative justice, abolition during my lifetime. So, strangely enough, I actually feel like I was more cynical when I was younger, even though in general, I was very idealistic. I was thinking about things in terms of hundreds of years, so, and beyond my own lifetime. I saw that in order to, and I still agree with this, that in order to really radically transform the way in which our societies function, and to have true sovereignty and liberation, that it would require deep, deep healing. I do see transformative justice work as necessary for sovereignty and liberation. In order to be able to govern ourselves, we have to be able to hold ourselves accountable and loving in ways that are not harmful or create more violence. I saw abolition and transformative justice as a project that was beyond my lifetime. And, I think when we were doing the work with Safe Side the System Collective, out of the Audrey Lord project, I was really just hoping that we could provide another option for folks who had been completely dropped by the system, folks who could not rely on police enforcement, and who we knew would not go to the cops, because of the trauma that they had experienced, or the distrust, or the ways in which cops were really violent to trans and queer people of color in central Brooklyn at that time. My hope was that we could at least provide another option for folks who are experiencing this kind of violence, racialized transphobic and homophobic violence. I do think that we were able to provide another option. Not for everyone, necessarily, but we were able to open that space. I was really stressed out when I first engaged in this work, and pretty critical and frustrated, there was a lot of theoretical and not enough implementation, praxis, practice, humanness, care and love and healing. Contemplative or spiritual work, depending on how you engage. I actually have gotten more hopeful over the last 20 years, because I feel that now there's more folks who do this work, TJ is not as obscure as I expected it to remain, you know? And I'm so grateful for all the folks, especially the black and indigenous women, 
trans, queer folks, and gender nonconforming folks, who really accelerated these movements and broadened how many people are engaged in these ideas now. People know more of the basics, like, when somebody brings up that they've been harmed, more people listen to them. More people do that now. They didn't used to do that. Everybody would reject it, you know? Somebody would bring up an incident in which they've been harmed and everybody's questioning them, they want to know the details, they're extracting information from them. It was so painful to witness and be a part of, and I feel like now, at least, folks know to shut up and listen, you know? And to me that's a huge difference from 15 or 20 years ago. That gives it a little bit of breath to do this kind of work. Just the fact that people, yeah, believe in it. Believe that it's possible. That it's more than just an intellectual exercise. That it has actually become a practice amongst our progressive communities is something that I feel really joyful and hopeful about. The biggest change for me between then and now is every time one of these incidences came up, I used to get really, really, really stressed out. Because I was anticipating everybody just being horrible. Laughs, and now, I don't get really stressed out. Because people actually have more tools and skills available. A few people thank Yelini at once. Leah, that's a really good reminder. Especially when we're still so fucked, and then I remember back when a lot of people I knew were like, is domestic violence really that bad? Hey Harris, I've been in a lot of spaces and doing a lot of work where it feels like the language of TJ is being weaponized between people. You're not TJ enough, you're not abolitionist enough, and you know, the 25-year-old self who started this work in 2005, who talked to people over and over again and no one understood it, doesn't understand how it's become that, right? And so, I get really curious about the passage of time, and how y'all think about it connected to TJ. Like, what changed? Would the work that you started work during these times? Opportunities? Challenges? Like, we're in a different time, and I'm trying to touch it, feel it, get it. And I need y'all's help. Yalini, I think it's kind of like the way I talk about some yoga, which is the residue of the residue of the residue of what people stole from the ancestors. I feel like that sometimes with TJ, because I think people are just getting glimpses of it on social media, and haven't necessarily been in deep practice. We get the residue of the core ideas that end up being, as you framed, a Harris, weaponized against folks. So, I definitely have heard the critiques of TJ work being this almost Christian forgiveness, what's it called, apologist, frame. And I think that's because folks are engaging with the residue of what people understand as transformative justice, versus the idea of it being survivor-centered healing, as Jenna articulated earlier. Alexis, yeah, I was just inspired by that. I was thinking also about the role of social media, and I was thinking to myself, like, would we have been as hungry to gather in person around these things if it had been a time period where we could have had some proxy of that on the internet? I don't know. And then I wonder, because so much of how our practice grew had to do with transforming our homes specifically, being in our homes together and thinking about our homes as sites of transformation. I mean, specifically, our practice looked like bringing people who we didn't even know into our homes, brainstorming with them around supporting them when they had just literally survived something in our neighborhood. I just wonder about that because a lot of the character of our early steps was, legit, so kitchen table. And I'm trying to even imagine it. I'm trying to imagine, what if we had this different internet structure at that time? Even though the internet still did play a really big role in what we were doing. 
especially the network of women of color bloggers who supported our work and participated in the National Day of Truth-Telling in their own communities around the United States. We were vigilant about sharing all the publications, like how to support a survivor, and worksheets we made as PDFs online. And we were able to look at the Harm-Free Zone wiki. We certainly felt inspired and affirmed by people elsewhere who were connected to us only through the internet. So, I wouldn't say I know what would it look like now. But I do feel like the inundation of hashtag me too, and that you can see it every day, and the many hashtags that also have been created where you can see survivor stories and feel part of a virtual community is significant. And that is different than how we felt. For us, creating community of survivors was something that we were specifically doing over food, and that we were really doing in person, and if we were sharing things publicly, it was with so many people literally standing with us physically in space, in this community that we wanted to reclaim and transform. Yeah, so, it's hard to be, like, would that work now? Or, if it was now, what would be the different things that we would do? How would now not look like now, if it hadn't been for the things that all of us had been involved in over the past 15 years or so? Jenna, I would just love to listen to y'all talk about this forever. As someone who's never used social media before, like in my personal life, I think I sometimes get the residue of the residue of the residue of conversations that are happening, based on the residue of work that's happened. But I do have the chance to facilitate a lot of groups of people, especially younger people, in the last 10 years. So, my perspective is slightly analog maybe, of what are the conversations that come up, and then folding. A. Harris, when you asked the question, I really was picturing, like, a spiral, kind of. Of, right, we have these ideas that start here, kind of, and then they move and change and then they get deeply critiqued and cut up, and then a new thing emerges, and then we move from there, and then that gets cut up, and then at a certain point we're like, well, this looks a lot like what we were talking about five years ago, or ten years ago, or something. But I have come to really like that. And to be like, cool, this is a conversation that I'm getting to hear folks who are really early on their journey of thinking about this together. And it sounds really similar to conversations I got to be a part of 10 years ago, and kind of, Alexis, how I think you were saying it, like, with these kind of, the conditions are a little different. And so, the building blocks that people are using to fabricate a really similar logic have these different assumptions behind them, or something. And I'll try to think of some more specific examples and then write it down, or something. But, you know, some of the vacillation, and all of y'all have kind of touched on this, of just, I think there's this really tough binary that's been created of a thing, of a process that's centering the person who perpetrated harm, or centering the survivor, and we, I always have been a part of a lot of processes and conversations where we're doing this dance of, like, trading places. Either within one process, or within a five-year period of, like, what our beliefs and practices are, to match who goes in the center. And then these sometimes really beautiful moments, where it does feel like the binary has been broken, or something like that. And we're figuring out room for a bigger community to be in that center. Yeah, but, y'all know what I mean by those conversations? I'm just doing spiral motions with my hand, over and over again. Adrian, so, Philly's piss started as a response to a really specific set of situations that happened in a really specific community. I think there were other conversations like that starting around the country, in different communities. But we certainly didn't know the concept of transformative justice. I'm not sure it existed yet. It was a little bit of restorative justice. 
there was a vague sense of, using the police is wrong. So, I think what was said earlier about how this stuff has crept into the language, and the language has changed, was really profound for me to hear, because there was no model. We were making it up. And we made a lot of really clumsy mistakes where now I look back and I'm like, wow, that was embarrassing. Laughs, but there are models now, and the language has changed, or become something accessible, and that's partially the internet a little bit. And I was thinking also, I do most of my organizing with people who are in prison, so it's completely analog. Like, people who are in prison are not allowed to have access to the internet. I'm part of publishing a newsletter to facilitate communication among trans people who are incarcerated, and we got a submission from someone that had, like, a content warning, even in those very slow conversations that take place through the mail, this awareness that we want to center and pay attention to the impact of trauma. But my own trajectory is that we started Philly's Pissed as a response to specific situations, and then there were more situations that were brought to us. And I didn't want to keep doing the work of directly facilitating. I wanted to be doing work training different communities. Cause, like, actually we're onto something kind of useful. And so, that group, I think, fell apart because of tension between let's keep centering ourselves in this work versus let's center these useful ideas and share with other people how to do this instead of inserting ourselves into communities that aren't ours, if that makes any sense. A. Harris, I have two final questions. What would you like people to learn from your work? And what was hard? What was great? Yalini, I'd like people to learn slash know that another way of being is possible. That we can, as SOS Collective would articulate, prevent, intervene, and address the harm committed against our communities. What is hard? When folks who have committed harm refuse to take accountability and threaten survivors and their support network with defamation lawsuits or worse. What are survivors' legal recourses in these situations? We still see a lot of backlash by people in power and the outing of survivors who wish to remain anonymous. What is great, when you are in a community that practices consistent loving feedback, generative conflict, and consistent accountability, accountability, feedback, and conflict can actually be pleasurable as it helps us to become sharper, more loving, magical, and caring people. It also strengthens trust and it feels really good to trust and be trusted. Alexis, I would like people to learn from Ubuntu and the Durham harm-free zone process that we can create structures of change from the vulnerable place of how we harm and have been harmed. I want people to know that the love we find there is so full of insight and energy that it can change the way an entire city organizes. Today, on election day, I am thinking about the fact that one of the outcomes of our organizing this past decade plus is that we have an attorney general and district judge and multiple city council members who have actually come out of our movement and are actively moving our city towards abolition, which is something I could have never imagined. A black lesbian abolitionist attorney general running unopposed today? What? I see this as a direct outcome of us supporting each other to live the words of Audre Lorde and not to allow our fear to silence us. Articulating justice on new terms is having direct impact on the people most impacted by state violence in our communities right now. What was hard? It was hard to stay with each other when we acted out our harmful survival skills on each other. It was hard to navigate violence and harm in relationships that had been core building blocks of our movement towards each other. When the households that housed our movements harmed each other and fell apart, including mine. What was great? It was great to open our homes and our arms to each other. It is great to see the generational impact and to be in each other's lives in meaningful ways. 
It is great to be part of a place so committed to love and so effing brave. Hashtag Durham Forever. Jenna, from the work that Philly Stands Up Collective did, I want people to learn that when harm is perpetrated, people need holding, structures, resources, creativity, process, and ideas. So many of these things have been lovingly created by incredible collectives and community organizations all around North America, and beyond. It can feel overwhelming to respond to harm that happens interpersonally and community, but linking up with friends, comrades, and neighbors, breaking things into small and digestible steps, and creatively utilizing these resources can really make complex action feel possible. Remember that when we can figure out how to respond to harm, we are moving closer to building worlds outside of violence that we so desperately crave. Let's do this with rigor, not dogma, with joy, not rigidity, in community, not in isolation. What was hard, sometimes at the end of an accountability process, people don't feel much better. That is painful, confusing, and sometimes heartbreaking to see and witness. Accountability processes don't delete the harm and violence that has been done and the echoes of past acts of violence and repression that ring throughout the bodies of survivors and communities. How can accountability processes effectively make behavioral and institutional change while still centering healing? What was great, the love our collective had and has for each other. When you do this work in community you are family for life. This love, support, and connection ripples out of just our small collective and connects us to comrades all over the world doing this work, our hearts are beating together. 25. Every Mistake I've Ever Made An Interview with Shira Hassan Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasena Shira Hassan is a notorious badass in transformative justice work. A former adult ally and co-director of the Young Women's Empowerment Project, Shira got involved in 2002 and remained in leadership alongside the young people who ran the project until 2014, when UEP closed. UEP is, to this day one of the only non-profit organizations lead by sex working and street economy involved youth that has ever existed, Shira has been thinking about and practicing TJ for decades. In 2014, she founded Just Practice, a training collaboration inviting people to learn about transformative justice by practicing it. Shira has a huge amount of on-the-ground experience and good sense. In October 2018, over a lush tourist meal, I asked her some questions about the current and future state of transformative justice. Shira, we have a lot of good politics around TJ right now. What we need now is good practice, and we need people to feel safe to make mistakes. We've created a politics of purity around transformative justice that's making it really difficult for people to just try things. It's setting up this feeling that we can't make mistakes. But the truth is that every single mistake moves us forward, and that all the conflict that we have is a resource for our next spot, and we have to really figure out how to give ourselves the space to make mistakes. We've created a culture where we're so afraid to make mistakes that we can't practice, because, who would want to? A purity politic happens when we think that transformative justice has a formula that you're supposed to follow every single time. And when people hear about processes that are happening that don't mirror what they think is the right way, they have the privilege of critiquing that practice, even if that practice is working for people. Even if that practice really does match the broader philosophy and goals of transformative justice, it just may not, you may just be hung up on a detail that really doesn't have to work in that moment. I feel a lot like it's suggested ingredients in a recipe. There's a lot of components that are part of transformative justice practice. And there are definitely things that should not be. 
but each time we sit down to do the work, we're going to pull different things from our toolbox. It's not always going to be a circle. It's not always going to be a freaking three-year-long community accountability process. Leah, thank God. Shira, thank God. But, you know, it can be something else that uses similar ingredients. And then what we have is purity politics coming in and saying, no, it's supposed to be this plus this plus this plus that, or it's not transformative justice. It's not the right way to do things. You hear people calling out processes that are going well to the people who are involved with them. I saw something play out maybe a year and a half ago, where someone who I happened to know had no experience practicing community accountability heard about a process that a friend of mine was doing, where everyone had agreed to do a circle with someone who had caused sexual violence. It was a completely transparent and agreed upon process that everyone wanted. This person with zero experience, who had a really amazing analysis around TJ, and talked about TJ all the time on the internet, had tons and tons of followers, went hard to be like, you can't have an accountability circle with a sexual predator in the space with the survivor. That is 101, TJ 101. The survivor and the predator should not be in the same space. And like, seriously ranted at the process, which was working, to the point where the survivor then started to question, am I being harmed? Like, are the people who are holding my process harming me? And then, after multiple check-ins with the survivor and all involved the survivor said, no, I want to be a part of this process, this is actually what I want. So, the process kept moving forward. And then, the person on the internet coming back in again to be like, just critiquing from the side with this idea in mind that it wasn't supposed to happen that way, when that was absolutely what was needed for that process. And thankfully, ultimately, they made an agreement to stay off social media, and keep the process off social media, and everyone agreed to, if they saw anything about the process, to flag it up to the facilitator, but to not, like, jump on it. And that's how they contained it. But it was very painful and sad, because it wound up being a really large thread that impacted lots of people, and the survivor was actually really solid with the process that she was a part of designing. I started just practice because I wanted us to be able to fucking have space to talk about mistakes. I keep saying I'm gonna do this workshop, but I haven't yet, called every mistake I've ever made. Leah, oh god, please do that workshop. Shira, yeah, and just bring your mistakes. I share my mistakes all the time, but I feel like some mistakes are mistakes in the moment, but actually work in other situations, and that can be really difficult. Because there is no rule book. And then, I think, the other thing around mistakes is we need to admit that we're in learning, and if we can stay students, that we can get so much further than saying we're experts. The truth is, there are no experts in this. It doesn't matter how long you've been practicing. The reason we say it's a practice is because you have to keep fucking practicing, and you're gonna make mistakes. There is no expert level, like, you don't get there. Leah, you work with radical social work students around how to bring TJ principles into that work when you're supposed to be a mandated reporter, if somebody discloses abuse? Shira, harm reduction has created an opportunity for social workers to stay radical in their practice of social work. So many radical people get into social work because they're already doing the work of being a resource or a support in their community and the letters from the social work degree makes the work sustainable. So, how do we have the conversations about holding to our radical politic when social work makes us complicit with the state so often? I don't actually think TJ can be practiced in social work, 
because so much social work is inherently complicit with the state. And that is the difference between TJ and restorative justice, that TJ is inherently outside the state. I think we can use the values of TJ to guide our practice. And, we can turn to RJ, restorative justice, practices, which can be really useful for social workers, who are already complicit with the state. So there's no risk of co-opting the TJ movement, because we can reach for RJ. A lot of what we talk about is when to reach for RJ because it reduces harm in that system. And then how do we hold our larger values so that we are not in conflict with the radical practice that brought us to social work, but instead like trying to figure out how to stay sustainable in the work, while holding the value of not being complicit with the state. The dilemma with mandated reporting is that we have mass sexual abuse, and we have mass childhood sexual abuse. And what makes sense is a mass system to address it. And the truth of that mass system is that it doubles down on the violence. And it doubles down on the harm. And the other truth is that we don't have an alternative to it. And so, the problem is that we want to stop what's happening to children, and we want to stop sexual violence. And we're in these roles where the solution is supposed to be making a report. And that report is supposed to make a change that's measurable in someone's life, towards safety. And so much of what we see is that does not happen, or it increases the risk. So then you have this tension of like, I don't believe in activating the state, but I'm witnessing horrific violence, and I need to take an action that doesn't lead to violence against me as the worker, and that doesn't increase the violence against the people who are being harmed, and so now I'm in this conflict because I don't believe in being complicit with the state, and this is the only solution that I have going, and I need to sit with how I resolve this effectively, but the truth is that there is no effective resolution for that tension. That tension exists because it's a giant as problem that we need more creativity around, and we need that tension to keep us creative. If we were looking at that from just a purity politic point, it would just be never participate in mandated reporting. And that keeps people practicing underground the solutions, because it keeps them at higher risk for losing their jobs, because if they're not reporting, then they're very high risk for losing their jobs. And if they are reporting, then they're at very high risk for losing their community and really what they're trying to figure out how to do is end sexual violence. Leah, and the beat goes on. Shira, laughs, and the beat goes on. Leah, thank you for breaking that down, Shira. There are a lot of armchair anarchists who would be like don't report, man. But that leaves out the massive numbers of kids who are being sexually abused, and the person who's just like I can't not make the fucking call, so how do I harm reduce that, and if they stay here, they could die? And the People's Court of Insight, Women of Color Against Violence is not gonna roll up in a bloodmobile and fix things and have a guillotine, it's not gonna happen. Shira, one thing I'd like us to do more of is have realistic conversations with survivors about what a TJ process can and can't do. I think that another place that this politic has led us is to the idea that TJ can somehow undo a harm, or that the harm can somehow be healed, and that really, unfortunately, Those of us who are survivors know that it's an ongoing lifelong process, and what I want a community accountability process to do is set everyone up for the best possible healing, and set everyone up for the best possible transformation. But what I think we do is sell it as something that undoes harm. Leah, it's like if you can go back to before colonialism through TJ. Shira, yeah, and this idea, I think, really sells survivors a bill of goods, and it also sets practitioners up to hold can you undo my experience of sexual violence? Can you help me reverse the clock so it feels like this never happened? And I don't, I wouldn't say it that way. 
I'd actually like not to say it that way. But this idea of like, for practitioners, but that practitioners can somehow cure it. That practitioners can somehow cure the harm, and really, it's actually about setting us up for the best possible healing that we can give you, so that you have more than we had, to try to get to your next place with a little bit more ease, and a little bit more nourishment, and a little bit more holding. It's like that quote I've seen on the internet lately, trauma creates change you don't choose. Healing is about creating change you do choose. That's, I feel like, what we can offer in a community accountability process, the beginning of healing and a feeling of the power being back in your hands. And, also, I feel like we can offer people who have caused harm the opportunity to truly be in transformation, and to truly sit with that, and the gift of being accountable. And that is a gift that we deserve, all of us deserve. So, that's one piece. Leah, what are some things you want people to stop doing in TJ? Shira, there's the thing of everyone thinking all forms of violence are the same, therefore all solutions to violence are the same. And that all the tools that we have are also the same. And they're actually really different, for lots of reasons. The harm that comes from thinking that stalking is the same as trafficking, or that sex work is the same as trafficking, or that everything is fucking trafficking. Or that sexual harassment and rape are the same. And, like, I think where it gets real tricky, and I think where we're afraid to have these conversations, is that it's so important that everyone is validated in their experience of survival, and that my experience of sexual harassment can dislocate me for years, and that is still different than someone else's experience of childhood sexual abuse. And just because the healing process is hard doesn't mean that all the violence is the same, and that we need to address that violence differently. There is not a hierarchy in violence, it's just very important that everyone knows that each thing is not the same. I hear a lot of lumping all sexual violence, or all gender-based violence, and that all of it needs a transformative justice process, and I don't know. There are different things that work for different things. A community accountability process is not the same as a transformative justice practice. A transformative justice practice is how we have our own movement security at demos, marches, and rallies. And how we have a bad date sheet in the sex trade to track fucked up Johns. And how we have what you brilliantly talked about, that was world-changing for me, around community restraining orders. Those are so different than a community accountability process, which is a long-term transformative piece that involves lots of people working specifically on one thing that happened between two people. And then we have circles, which, now we're like, circling for everything, and circles are really ineffective for certain things. Leah, like with organized crime, I don't know if a CA process is gonna work. Shira, a CA process not only would not work, but would increase danger. Like, when the power differential is, you can't have a community accountability process with your abusive boss in a nonprofit. The power differential is too wide. We can use transformative justice practices in those examples. And, we can think about restorative justice, and the ways it is helpfully complicit with the state in order to reduce harm from the state in certain instances. And then there's mediation, which, everyone thinks a community accountability process is mediation. Or, not everyone, but it's a common misconception that we can somehow mediate an experience of sexual violence. Like, actually, mediation may never have anything to do with it. Mediation is a very specific skill set that I don't have. I do know lots of great mediators. And that's really great for interpersonal conflict. That can be really useful with your abusive boss in a non-profit. Leah, where do you want the movement to go?
What do you want us to be doing at this moment in time and over the next four years? Shira, I really want us to move into deep practice. I want us to be students of each other and students of the movement, and students of violence, and students of healing. And I want us to come humble with all of our shit. And figure out what we've tried that works, what we know we can offer, where each of us have a place in this, and where we don't. Where do we need to step back? Are you someone who jumps in at every fight? Are you someone who's completely conflict avoidant? Maybe that's not community accountability facilitation. Maybe that's another, really valuable style of transformative justice practice that you can help us get to. Who are you in this movement? I want us to be students of ourselves, and to really just sit with all of the possibilities around how we can participate that don't require us to be in the center. Like, people feel like they need to be holding a five-year process, or they don't have enough experience and they're on the sidelines. Leah, laughs, 10 five-year processes. Shira, yeah, and I feel pretty sure that most of us have something to contribute, and that we need to be students of what that contribution is. Because we need so many more brains, and so many more minds, and so many more hands on this. There's probably a less ablest way to say that. Laughs, everyone's labor, we need everyone's labor. Not just femme labor, not just women of color labor, not just trans people of color labor, we need everyone's hard work, and we need everyone to be students in this moment. So, that's where I want us to go. And I want us to document those things. Not document them for political analysis purposes, but like, give me your top 10. Like, what is your top 10 most useful things that you've tried? And, tell me, was it specific to your city or your neighborhood? so that we could just start having compilations of the best 10 that worked in whatever intersection. Because this has to stay organic. Someone asked me recently about scaling this work, and I don't want it scaled. And I think that's another politic critique, is that transformative justice can't be scaled. We know that TJ can't be scaled because we know what scaling looks like. It looks like RJ, we've got that. And so, what we need is for as many organic pockets of people who are practicing the work to start documenting it. So that we can understand all the different kinds of intersections. And learn from all those intersections to create a better practice together. Leah, we are in a period of heightened state repression, and we're also in a time where some people are like okay, this is it, this is really the revolution, let's make the systems we need. We're already seeing with SESTA, Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, and FOSTA, Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, the ways in which sex workers have kept themselves safe becoming criminalized. Do you have thoughts about how we continue to be in those organic pockets of people doing TJ in a time where so much of the work we're doing is being repressed? Shira, well, I think that's part of why I don't want it to scale. Because I want us to keep a close conversation around it, and I want what works in our community to be smooth enough and practiced enough that even if they repress me, they can't repress what we built. So, I think, part of it is that. And I think, you know, another part of it is like, we need all the practices. Leah, you come from a strong harm reduction background, which I don't think is true of everybody who does TJ slash CA work, and you bring that to your TJ work. Can you speak more about that connection and how it works for you? Shira, harm reduction, for me, is such an organic part of my work, that of course it's a part of TJ and an organic part of me and staying alive. For me, harm reduction is about surviving, and about figuring out how I can, 
the moment where I can have the most self-determination over whatever the circumstances that I'm in. And the moment where I can have the most impact in whatever my situation is. I can look for the best possible outcome for something really horrific that happened, and to try to figure out what are, how do I stay self-determined through the whole piece. The gift that harm reduction has given me has been to be able to really mean self-determination, and to view things on a spectrum and a continuum, and to think about how to hold all of the truths of all of the things that are happening, and to be able to sit with the beautiful mess. TJ is nothing if not sitting with the beautiful mess. And that's what harm reduction is. That's what harm reduction taught me. I say this a lot in my workshops, if I wasn't the originator of Kill Your Rapist as a slogan, I certainly tried damn hard to act like I was. I put that shit on everything that I had. I sharpied it on my backpack, on my t-shirts, on the bathroom wall. I chalked it everywhere I could. I am a firm believer in the sentiment Kill Your Rapist. And I think that you can be a firm believer in Kill Your Rapist, and still practice transformative justice and community accountability. And that's another tension that has to exist. And, I think the other truth is like, who's doing the killing, in terms of, you know, this is why survived and punished is so necessary. Because like, Leah, those are people who actually killed their rapists. Shira, these are people who have fought back, and when women of color fight back, the targeting increases and the state violence increases, and what TJ is trying to do is reduce the harm from state violence and to come up with other solutions. Leah, is there anything else that you want future generations to know? Shira, all any one of us who started trying to do TJ was ever talking about was the reality of our lives. And like, transformative justice has to embrace all the intersections of who we are in a real way, and that's why we need so many people to try shit. I just want people to try shit. Just try something. Write down what worked. Write down what didn't work. And let's just keep moving on. Let's just keep going and collecting it. 26. Be Humble An Interview with Mariam Kaba By A. Harris Dixon and Leah P. Epsna Samarasinha It is challenging to describe Mariam Kaba's impact on transformative justice in a way that does justice to her work and intellect, which are both genius and foundational. Mariam is the founder and director of Project NIA, a grassroots organization with a vision to end youth incarceration, and has co-founded more organizations than can be easily counted, including the Chicago Freedom School, the Chicago Task Force on Violence Against Girls and Young Women, the Chicago Alliance to Free Marissa Alexander, and the Rogers Park Young Women's Action Team, YWAT, as well as Survived and Punished. She is a constant force for innovative, rigorous, and life-saving transformative justice thought and practice. A. Harris and Leah interviewed her in October 2018. A. Harris, how did you get involved with transformative justice work? Mariam, really, I fell into the work. I was called into the work because of one particular situation that occurred about 15 years ago. A friend of mine was assaulted by an acquaintance. My friend wanted to figure out a way to address the assault without bringing in the police or going through the system. It wasn't something I was calling transformative justice. I was just like, how are we gonna resolve this problem? And I just basically created a small team around her, brought in other friends, and we began to talk with her. Like, what's possible here? What would you like? What's the outcome you want to reach? And actually, we were able to come to a resolution that was a good one for her. So, my first kind of foray into doing this work was actually a good one. It worked out you know? 
and I didn't know what I was doing, and I didn't have a plan or any sort of map to guide me at all. I just had my common sense, and my experiences. I had already been doing anti-violence work for a decade before that. So, I had already been doing work on the crisis line, I'd already been doing work on both an anti-rape and domestic violence line. I had been 40-hour trained, I had other things that I could rely on, to kind of try to figure out how to intervene in violence, not just from an interpersonal sense but a structural sense as well. When that happened, other people who were in my community heard what happened in my friend's case, and then began to ask me to help other people within our broader community when some things happened. I have never advertised that I do processes. It wasn't until later that I had language that what I was doing was even a transformative justice process. A. Harris, people have the benefit of the experience that a lot of us have put in, and many of us, we didn't have the opportunity to go to the Just Practice three-day training when we started, right? So, what's your opinion on training? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, as someone who's doing a lot of training right now. Miriam, I'm actually hoping not to do more training. One of the reasons we decided to do training was because it was born out of necessity. I was going to move back to New York. I had been living in Chicago for over 20 years. When I was in Chicago, me and Shira were basically two of the people who got called for almost every potential issue that arose that people thought needed a process. When I knew I was leaving, I started talking to Shira about a year before the time that I was moving, and I said to her, you know, when shit goes down, you refer people to me, I refer people to you, but now that I'm leaving the city, you'll be the only one here, and you're going to get many more referrals. So, we were like, we've got to have more people. How are we going to do that? Shira already had Just Practice as her consultancy. So, we then created the Just Practice Collaborative, which had two layers to it. One layer was to actually build a group of folks as a cohort that would be trained to be able to at least have the skills, and more importantly, to have each other, but to be Chicago-specific on that. And the second layer was that we would work more together, Shira and myself, to do more intensive mentorship of a small group of people who would basically run the Just Practice Collaborative in Chicago. So, that's how Rachel, and Deanna and Kisa, and Anna came on board. To work with us, to do the training, but also so they could be people who could potentially mentor people in order to be able to move this forward. And again, we were thinking about this as a very intentional, specific geographical intervention. There was never any interest in training beyond Chicago. That was not the goal. We were also, very much at the beginning, saying, this is going to be a time-limited thing. I'm doing it for a year or two, and then that's going to be it. Then I'm leaving. That's the point. To leave something behind, to leave some capacity. Allow people to take some of this on themselves. And when we started, Shira and I were like, if we could train enough people to where we have five people we could refer people to, this would be a massive success and we've done that. But what happened when we put out the call for training, this is like an internet age. Shit, we posted on our Facebook pages. We didn't even do a big marketing push. We literally posted it on Twitter and on my Facebook page, because Shira was not even on Facebook anymore. From there, we got people who wanted to come from literally all around the country, and Canada. And we were like, wait a minute. That wasn't what we were trying to do. But given that there's hunger and desire for people who need a workshop and training space, then we'll open it up on a limited basis to more people. We ended up doing these mini-series to try to build a local base of folks. 
And I just want to add one more thing that Shira would add, which is that part of this was that we had prepped for years before that, before doing the Just Practice Collaborative. We were doing one-off trainings in Chicago, so we had a group of people in mind to invite to this new, second 202 level stuff. They'd already gone to like, a CA 101. They'd already gone to the Carceral Feminism 101 and Abolition 101 workshops we'd been running. I just wanted to put that out on the table because, again, it was not at all, we did not do this to be able to be like, yes, we are TJ experts, and now come to our training so you can learn everything you need to know in order to do this. We are both organizers. We had an organizing strategy for what we wanted to do in Chicago with this work. Leah, I appreciate you laying out both what you did as an organizing strategy and the specific dynamic of those are the two people who know what they're doing. Let's work them to death. Laughter, I'm really intrigued by you saying, I want to stop doing trainings, and I'm curious what you think should be happening instead. Miriam, I don't think this is a work that is about experts. I want this work to be work that anyone and everyone who wants to try to do it does. And I don't want people to feel like this is work that you have to get some certification in, in order to be able to do. I don't want to contribute to that. To the extent that it's useful for people to have political education together, that's what we are hoping the trainings we've been doing are. That they're in part political education, in part skill building, and also in part base building, so that we actually organize to be able to end these systems that are based in oppression. That oppress us. So, that's why. I don't want to do, like, the RJ thing, where everybody is now taking circle training, and, as a result of that, they think they know everything they need to know about RJ because they went to the circle training. I don't want to be part of making that for CA, community accountability. And so, at our trainings, Shira and I consistently say that we are not the experts here. We are gonna share what we've learned from hard-earned actual experience. And we really hope that you remember that this is so context-specific. If there's anything that's true about CA, it is that it's so specific to where you are, who you're working with, what is the harm, all that stuff. A. Harris, I think a lot of us started doing TJ before social media was a thing, laughs, and now we see social media, whether we see TJ being applied to violence that happens online, or we just see social media impacts of it, I would love to hear your thoughts about the place and role of TJ in online communities because I think you know those worlds well, and you've had some guidelines about what you know doesn't work. Miriam, I pretty much hate a lot of social media. I use it as a tool, but I'm not a fan of the way it can flatten people and can flatten issues, and sometimes allows people to remain anonymous in very harmful ways. That said, I've actually tried to think through with other people what are some potential guidelines that we might agree to, some rules of the road around engagement on social media if you're doing community accountability work and transformative justice work. It's a tool for disseminating information about harm, for sure. It's become that. You see people who've posted about their experiences in open letters. You see people posting about their experiences on their Facebook pages. Some of those interactions have thousands of people responding and commenting and putting in their two cents. Whether those people know anybody involved or not, it allows people to have an opinion. And so, in that way, it is like the interactive equivalent of the bathroom wall. You know, where people put, like, so-and-so is a rapist, and then you'd come to the bathroom and then there'd be a bunch of comments under that, like, you know, what is this about? Or girl, I see you. This is the equivalent. Except that the bathroom wall was seen by 10 people, 
and now millions of people could see your bathroom. Leah, and the FBI. Miriam, yes. And the state, and everybody else can see all the stuff happening in real time. And that can be empowering for some people, because it allows them to exert some power to maybe try to force or coerce somebody to respond to what has happened, in a way that they probably couldn't before, especially if there was a power differential there. And, so, all that stuff is going on and is true, and on its face, I think it appears that it could be a positive development in leveling the power differential, because now you have a way to speak back to somebody you don't have access to in other ways. So, that appears that it could be a positive thing. But sometimes social media also has become a tool to actually harm people. Like, an actual way to get at people, and also sometimes a way to avoid taking accountability for harms that you cause. So, it's a mix of things. And I've been wrestling with how to manage the impacts of social media, both positive and negative, in the processes I've facilitated. So, I want to ask early on, what is our communications plan when we are working together? Do we have agreements as to how and when we're going to use social media and when we might not? I've been inviting people who are facilitating CA processes to have very intentional communications plans that include what are the actual consequences if people violate these particular things that we've agreed to. Like, what happens if you're somebody who decides, I'm actually not going to abide by these agreements anymore, I'm going to do my own thing and be like a lone ranger or free agent, what does that mean for the whole entire process? Because it is a matter of trust. CA processes at their most basic are about trust. And if you don't have that, if somebody violates that trust, then the whole thing can just collapse upon itself. I also tell people, especially those of us who are older and didn't come of age in social media land, that people should not be talking about social media and real life as though they're distinct. They are not. What is happening online is happening offline, and what is happening offline is happening online. What happens offline bleeds into the online world, and vice versa. I also tell people, don't minimize the effects of social media. Just cause you're not on it doesn't mean shit's not happening that you're just not aware of. And if you're a facilitator, you not knowing information is the death knell of your facilitation ability. If a whole bunch of mess is happening outside of your knowledge, and you're not paying any attention to it, and you're the key coordinator for a process, then you're gonna get blindsided, literally on all sides, when shit is hitting the fan and you are not in touch with that. So, it's just not an option to pretend that there's nothing happening out there. A few months ago, I posted a series of suggestions on Facebook around how bystanders and or people who are directly involved in CA processes can be constructive when they see stuff happening online. It was a set of guidelines or suggestions for how they might react, in a way that would be healthier, kinder. Some of the things I talked about there were, slow down before you post. Take time to think about what justice would actually look like. When you get information, check it out. Don't feel pressured to intervene. Just because something's happening, you don't have to be part of it. Almost no one asks what the person who's been harmed actually wants, usually they just go off on their own rants about XYZ but, like, how about the person who was harmed? Like, what do they actually want from this interaction? Do they want you out there slandering people, or yelling at people, or doing whatever? Or do they have other things in mind? I just always want to remind people that we're all just human. And we're not perfect. And we need to be able to hold ourselves in all our contradictions, and also I do think it's important to be kind. I really do. To me, 
Kindness is a very important value of transformative justice and community accountability work. I want to see how people can operationalize kindness online. It would be good for people to take that as a value from which to work, before launching into things that are about destruction and about vilification, and, you know, the word disposability has been, to me, bastardized, but, all that. A. Harris, what are three things or more that you want people to know about TJ? Or, three things you want people to stop doing. Miriam, one thing I would like people to stop doing, is stop thinking that everything needs a process. Laughs, there are so many practices that are steeped in restorative justice, that are steeped in conflict mediation and conflict resolution, that are steeped in other modalities for addressing harm. CA processes are specific. They are time-consuming. They take a lot of emotion. They take a lot of resources, energy, and you don't need to be calling for a process for everything. Sometimes, you need to pick up the phone and call that person and have it out. Sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes it's a long email apology. Sometimes it's a circle that's a one-off. We need to be able to think through what demands an actual TJ process versus what are interventions that need to be had because of conflict, right? Abuse, conflict. These things need to be really clearly laid out for folks. We also have to stop acting like saying that somebody can't be in a space is disposing of them. First and foremost, asking someone who has caused harm not to be in a space, particularly where the survivor would be, is actually a consequence of the action that they took that was harmful. It's a consequence. It is not a punishment. A punishment would be taking this person's liberty and locking them in a cage for three years, or a month, or ten days, because of the actions that they took. We are not taking people's liberty through CA. We are just not. The idea of disposability in my mind is an idea that applies to the prison industrial complex. Okay. That's it. It is not boundaries. It is not a sense of you are not allowed to do this here. It is not, you know, people say things like, you can't ban people. Well, yes we can. If folks do the same thing over and over and over again, and refuse to take accountability for that, and don't want to learn, they can actually be banned from a particular space. We do have to figure out the other side of that. Which is, somebody does take accountability, and does what people ask them to do. When are they allowed to rejoin community in good standing? That is something we have yet to figure out how to do in consistent fashion. Because you're not going to be able to say to somebody, you can never come back to society, and expect those people to join accountability processes. Why would anybody do that? What currently exists in our culture that makes it possible for people to take accountability and think they actually will be able to, not clear their name, because that's not what we're in the business of trying to do, but, to actually be able to be in a position where they can rejoin our community in good standing, because they have done XYZ that people have asked of them? Leah, you've been doing this for over 15 years. What are some of your most valuable lessons that you'd want to share? Miriam, every time I take on a new process, I feel like I'm starting anew. I feel like, while I have a crutch that is years of work, and some things I've learned through that, I do always feel a sense of, like, this is new again. I don't know what I'm doing. Now I'm not so confused about how to start. I know how to start, you know what I mean? And I know how to end. Laughs, and I think that the middle part is the one that I'm always negotiating what all that looks like. Some of the other things I've learned are that we have to embrace the messiness of process. The messiness is inherent. 
It will always be there. And by messy, I mean that there are multiple U-turns that are happening all the time, that people are sometimes their best selves and sometimes not, that we move forward in some places and backwards in another, and that all this stuff is actually part of the work. For years, I've heard people say things like, TJ didn't work. And I don't understand what that means. Because, even in worst processes I've ever heard of people being a part of, something was learned in that process. Something got taken away, even if it was, these people don't know what the hell they're doing, and I don't like it, and I don't want this. Right? Bench Ansfield and, I think it was Jenna Peters Golden, wrote a piece years ago in Make Slash Shift that was all about the failure. Embracing failure and eschewing success in TJ processes. I love that. I use that in training. It just tells you, breathe. We get caught up in trying to succeed in the nonprofit industrial complex version of it. And what we did was actually lose sight of the small shifts and the small changes that were occurring that we should still document and hold on to. I think I learned about messiness of processes and eschewing a success slash failure binary, and embracing more of the gray. I've never posited TJ as, quote, the antidote to the pick, prison industrial complex. For me, TJ is a way to do the work that needs to happen to make sure that we're transforming our relationships with each other because, ultimately, I hope that that helps foster the conditions necessary for a world without these horrific death-making institutions that I want to see dismantled. I see it as a framework that allows for the transformation of relationships between us when we cause harm. I know for a fact that we can't heal or hurt alone. We must heal or hurt in relationship with other people. Every time you want to talk about the why, and you want to talk about the reason we need to do it is for all these things, right? The how is always that thing that we get stuck on. Over the years, I've gotten really distressed about the attempt to say that RJ is the alternative to the pick or TJ is the alternative to the pick. No, it's not actually the alternative. It isn't at all. It is an ideology, a framework, a political vision, a practice. All those things are true, and it's simply a way to shift and transform our relationships to allow us to build the conditions under which we will no longer need prisons and surveillance and policing, and all these other things that are part of the pick that we, as abolitionists, want to dismantle. Part of the problem of positing a, quote, alternative to the pick is that it is impossible. What is the alternative to oppression? Do you know what I mean? Like, think about that, as an institution. What is the alternative to exploitation? Like, yes, we don't want to exploit people. That's the alternative. But that's not an institution. Plus, the other thing about the alternative language is that it sets up this weird binary, whereby you now have the pick as it stands, this horrific set of forces, institutions, etc. Ideas that are death-making. And now I have to come up with the alternative to that system. Part of the problem with the prison, for example, is that it treats harms uniformly. We want to get away from that. So we get trapped in the notion of holding on to all these things and saying, now we gotta have something else. Well, something different or the opposite of. That's not how this shit works at all. So I would like people to stop thinking and offering and positing TJ as, quote, the alternative to the pick. It is not. That is not what it is. And we would all be better off if we just did not think about it in that way. A. Harris, what have you noticed that's changed in your practice over time? Miriam, one thing is that more people want to do processes. It's the popularization of the work we've done. That people now, they think they know what TJ slash CA is, 
and they want it. In terms of changes in the landscape, I've seen that. I started off thinking I would get better, that I would become expert at the work if I practiced enough. I would, like, have some shit down pat. And it turns out, no, I'm still making mistakes. I'm still having to clean up my own messes. I'm still having to clean up messes that other people have made. I've stopped trying to achieve mastery. And, if you know me as a person, people will know that that's very hard for me. A. Harris, I've been thinking a lot about how this work changes us. And I think I was noticing it in the ways that I connect to other people who've been in TJ for a while. Like, there's a tenderness that I connect with folks with. So, how has the work transformed you? What has happened inside of you in doing this work? Miriam, it is absolutely true that I am more empathetic as a result of doing this work. I'm more empathetic and I'm much more patient. Before I started doing this work, I would say that I, you know, I had empathy for various people, but I don't think I was an empathetic person. I've also gotten much less judgmental. It is absolutely true that people who harm people were also harmed. I know people sometimes don't want to hear that. I know that makes people mad, people feel like that's an excuse, whatever. But I, with every fiber of my being, the both slash and harm and survivorship really sits with me all the time. Cause there's not one person I've worked with who harmed other people that was not also deeply and profoundly harmed themselves in some other context. So, it just makes me much more patient, it makes me much more empathetic, and it just gives me the real understanding that we have to live with the complexity of how harm plays itself out in ourselves, in our community, and in our world. A. Harris, there's a lot of folks who hate their process. Or, you know, the process fails. When a process has, quote unquote, failed, are there things that you think about if people are asking you to help them with their process that is not going well? Miriam, well, I'm surprised at how few people actually have goals set before they launched into anything. Like, I don't understand how you cannot have goals. Laps, I see so much of the problem of failed processes having to do with not actually having any goals, or that the goals themselves were set in a way that was absolutely unachievable from the beginning. Like, you would not be able to actually meet the goals. And it should be limited goals, because that's all you can do. For example, like, transformation is not a realistic goal within a process. It is a realistic goal within a lifetime. I also think a lot about timing as a major contributor to failure. When are you having this process? Are you having this process while the crisis is actually still ongoing in a very severe way? This is not a good time. Crisis intervention is its own thing, okay? It is not process time when you're in crisis intervention mode. Another thing is people who never ever assess their own capacity to hold this shit down. I mean, if you're gonna do this, it's gonna take a while. You're going to be putting in a lot of energy. You aren't going to get paid. Critically important. Laughs, there will be no money coming to you. It's not a job. Those are things that I see happening in the processes that I'm getting called into last minute to fix. And I'm like, this can't be fixed, y'all have so much water under the bridge, don't call me now. It's way, way too late. Leah, if someone is brand new to attempting any kind of CA slash TJ thing, what are some hot tips, where you're just like, don't do that, or no this will happen? Miriam, I think it goes back to the point that I made which is, you know, self-assessment is key. Ask yourself a few questions before you jump in. Critically important. 
I think that people should figure out what the end is before you start. Things are going to change all along the way, but I like to know, when I take on a process, what I think the end is going to look like. Cause the thing that I think I got lost in early on was the endless time. And I think that isn't helpful. Leah, your work does suggest doing slow work. It's important, and it is also much more in line with disability justice. But there can be a contradiction in slow work too because I think the longer processes go, the more likely it is that there's going to be no end that people will be satisfied with. So, it's a tension like everything else is, but it's like, can you see the end of this, as the person who's holding it down is the main facilitator? If you can't, it's good to try to figure that out, before you jump in or early in the process at least, so you're not taking something on for seven years. Sometimes, seven years might be needed but I don't think so. Laughs, I think we've got to start thinking about timing in that way as well. Like, where does this stuff end? And finally, just, you know, be humble as hell. Get your ego out of it. Be humble.